Welcome back to the Weekly Trusted Visions podcast. Well, we're missing one of our valued team members, David Perez. Sean, Deb, thank you for joining me this morning. Hope you're having a great week and hope that all of our viewers are having a great week. Um, as we continue on this monthly series about succession planning and practice acquisition, this week's podcast is really going to focus on being a buyer of a practice. Um, and I know this is always a comical topic for, for us, Sean and Deb, from the perspective of every advisor out there, out of the 326,000-ish advisors, every one of them want to buy a practice. Um, but then what we're going to really discuss is, are you financially prepared to buy a practice? Because it's not like most broker dealers will offer some sort of financing. But as we know, the broker dealer that you're with Typically, it makes sense, wants you to have skin in the game when purchasing a practice. They don't want to finance the 100% of it. Or if you go to a bank and say, I'm purchasing a financial advisor's practice, most underwriters, very few of them, even know what you're talking about. Like, how do you value, put a true value on that? So I'm going to kick it off, if that's all right, Sean and Deb, and, and really talk about are you financially prepared to purchase a practice? Um, and with that being said, understanding, yes, there are some banks that are going to, you know, understand this business and have that specialty of buying a practice. But most banks and or your broker dealer, I don't know of a broker dealer that finances 100% of the practice. Um, most broker dealers want you to put in at least 20% of the upfront purchase of that practice. Some broker dealers say 10%, but most of them are 20%. And then depending on how you structure the purchase of the practice, you're paying a revenue share to that advisor that you're acquiring a practice for a period of two, three, four years. And so you have to be prepared to put similarly to buying a house, I guess I would use as the best example. You got to put down a down payment. You got to make those monthly payments um, on your mortgage just like you would make those monthly payments to the advisor that you're purchasing your practice. So it's great to say that you want to grow, but before you go down the path of, I want to grow through acquisition, which is, isn't the wrong answer, so to speak, you've got to be prepared both financially and from a timing perspective, because, and I, I won't steal your thunder, Sean, but you got to be prepared from a timing perspective to really spend the time with that advisor to understand the clientele, to build relationships with the clientele. Because if you don't, then you're going to have retention problems. So not only making sure you're financially prepared, but making sure you have the time to put in of going to visit those that advisor's clients. And, and that's one thing I don't think we were planning on covering today, but understanding when you're purchasing a practice of how often do you meet with clients? Do, do they expect those face-to-face -face meetings? Because if they do, that's where you got to figure out, does that require travel or is it in your local area? Do you have the support staff to support it? So my point is understanding purchasing practice isn't just saying, hey, I want to go out and purchase a practice. It's are you financially prepared to put that down payment on it similarly to buying a house? So with that, Deb, I'm going to hand it off to you, and, and I'm sure, well, we've heard this, but I'm sure a lot of our viewers of this podcast are asking themselves, yeah, I'm financially prepared. Where do I even start to purchase, to, to find a, per, a practice to purchase? So if you want to give some advice and, and guidance there, Deb, I think our viewers would enjoy that. 
Sure. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah. So I think first it's, it's kind of taken, you know, going the easy way, right? So when you're looking at, you already have established in our last podcast, last week we talked about kind of who, right? Who's going, who's the right candidate or what's the right practice? How do you qualify that person, that, that team? Um, once you know what you're looking for, and that is obviously somebody that's similar to your practice, the first place really to start is within your own firm, right? Because that's, that's again, just kind of the, the easy path, right? If someone is with your firm already, they're not going to have to transition from another broker dealer. Um, it just makes the acquisition that much easier. So you want to start within your own broker dealer organization. That's, that would be my advice anyway. Um, and how do you do that, right? So you can, I would A, start with uh, the recruiting, you know, branch office development team. A lot of times they will, we've all worked in broker dealers where we've done this, right? I mean, they will, they sh- they'll help you or a practice management team will help you identify advisor practices within that organization that are looking to sell or at least they can come up with maybe some names for you that um, are potential candidates that you could reach out on your own or they can reach out. Again, different firms do it differently. Um, we've all worked with firms where we've gotten very involved, right, in, in working and, and talking with other advisors within that area. Um, now, if you don't have anybody, we also can run into this where there's no one in your organization um, that meets your qualifications or is looking to sell. Because as you said, Jeremy, I don't even know what the, the number is, and I would I would totally exaggerate it. <laughs> we just know that there's a lot more buyers than there are sellers, right? Um, and so it's not easy to find, even within your own, or own organization, and depending upon how large the organization is, you know, that, that obviously dwindles that percentage. So um, you're going to want to have to go outside of the organization. And how do you do that? Um, there are obviously firms out there that um, have things that you can look into and you can go in and you can spend all this time doing all this work to put all your information in on whatever it is. And um, yeah, I know I'm not very technologically savvy um, and it might try and hook you up with somebody. And again, you're spending your precious time, right, instead of working with your clients or you can hire someone like Trusted Visions, an, an outside uh, firm that um, or work with, you know, kind of contract with that will go out basically and, and do that work for you. Now, the beauty of that is even with someone like us, depending upon, um, you know, where we can find someone, there's a lot of broker dealers that, you know, if you're bringing somebody, if we go out and find somebody that is a good fit for you to acquire practice, there's a lot of broker dealers that will pay right? Are the, the fee. Um, and I know we're not, I'm kind of going out and about, but I, I also, I want our viewers to know what well, you say, hire someone like a trusted visions, and then it's going to cost us a lot of times it won't. Right. But what we do is we take that burden off of you. We take that, you know, that time that you can be working on, on your business with your clients. We take all that hassle out and we can go out and help try and vet someone, right? So I think that's also, uh, you know, a good route to go um, in finding someone. So I, again, it's, it's kind of simple. It's kind of, you're either going to go inside your own uh, organization or you're going to need to go outside the organization. And how do you find those practices out there? Easy way with us. And well, and I will mention as well, um, and and then I'll pass it off. But sit, talk to your centers of influence, right? People that you know, wholesalers. Um, you know, call wholesalers up that you do a lot of business with. They've got good relationships with you. 
and say, hey, you know, keep me in mind if you run across anybody that says to you they're looking to, you know, sell their practice or you think I should be reaching out to, right? Because a lot of times an advisor may not even really be thinking about it because we're all going to work forever, right? That's what we do. We're all going to work forever. Um, but they may know of somebody that is a good fit with you that they say, hey, you ought to, you know, give give Joe a call. Um, so I think to me that that's kind of really the, you know, the few avenues that you can take to, you know, to find a practice to uh, acquire. And that's great points, Deb. One thing I would say, and this, and I would love your guys' feedback of, you know, when you talk about going outside the firm, if you're looking, and I know you weren't particularly speaking to this, Deb, but if you're looking at buying a practice from an advisor that's with another broker dealer, Mm -hmm. um, my opinion is you have to be prepared as the buyer more so than the seller to make a broker dealer change to that broker dealer for retention purposes of that client. Because the last thing you want to do is purchase an advisor's practice that's with another broker dealer and then go to his clients and say, hey, I'm the new advisor. And oh, by the way, here's some paperwork because you're moving broker dealers. From a retention standpoint, that's going to be a disaster. Would you guys agree with that? Seller typically doesn't move, but buyer does if it's within a different broker dealer? Well, I agree. The only caveat I have is is you want to administer the due diligence with uh, the new broker dealer as well, if you're the seller, because I'm actually working on a, a situation now where the advisor is actually going to transition to the new broker dealer mm-hmm. and the buyer is going to buy the seller's practice from the new broker dealer because the new broker dealer is just a stronger option. So, so I do think you have those scenarios as well mm-hmm. where, you know, it, it definitely you want to as a seller, just take a look at, at both options because it could be a win-win. You know, hey, it may be some extra paperwork, but if you're in a situation where you transition the clients to a better broker-dealer with better pricing, and um, I think that can kind of smooth things out and then you introduce to the uh, to the buyer. So I think it's all um, circumstantial. Great point, Sean. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree with Sean. I think it's it can go it can go either way, and you really have to when you're when you're working on the acquisition, you really got to position it because if you really are with a good strong firm, um, then you've got to be able to make that transition plan work for the seller as well in working with getting to know his clients and the time it takes right to get right. them transitioned over and and make for a really good smooth transition. Right, and and Deb, one other question for you would be. Would you consider it in your experience, because quite honestly, out of our team, I'm pretty sure you have the most experience in this industry of what we do um, and well-versed. Is it an advantage for someone that's looking to acquire a practice to be part of one of those larger enterprises or OSJs because they have retiring advisors? Would, Would you consider that an advantage as a sole advisor? Well, of course, it's a huge, it, that's one of the selling points, right, of, of being with a, a large enterprise with that is you have an automatic, right, or succession plan. If that's what you're talking about, Jeremy, yep. if that's what you mean, right? So um, getting in with an organization um, like that, again, you've got it built in because they have a lot of advisors right in there. And because most of the time those enterprise organizations, OSJ organizations that you're talking about, um, have good capital, they have a lot of assets under management, right? They can afford to acquire the practice. Also, you've been establishing, not necessarily the broker-dealer, but you've been establishing this brand, this team, 
this collaborative environment with your clients already, right? Because you're part of this organization that you're talking about. So it absolutely makes it a much easier, I mean, yeah, I mean, hands down, that's the best way to do it. It would be with that and and makes it easy. And like I said, an automatic, uh, an automatic succession plan. Absolutely. Right. Perfect. Sean, we're going to kick this one off to you. And I know you have firsthand experience um, on this this discussion point throughout your time in the industry. But as, as we talk about, are you financially prepared? How do you find a practice? Another question that many advisors may not think about is, how long should I retain the advisor that's a seller once I do finalize the purchase of the practice? Because well, the financial side of it and how to find one is important. In my opinion, the retention of the advisor and or the clients is probably even more important. So it is. Right. Can, can you give our viewers some, some advice on how do you go about determining the amount of time that, that the seller as the advisor should be retained for client purposes? Absolutely. So I have very strong opinions about this. Because I've witnessed successful uh, uh, transition uh, succession plans, and I've witnessed some that did not go so well. And it all was really equated to the amount of time uh, that the advisor spent in the transition process of, well, of client relationship. So with that, you know, I want to preface it by saying, first of all, if, if, you're all, if you already have a relationship with the buyer, then obviously... This time frame uh, that I'm going to suggest is not for you. For example, if you are a junior advisor, you know, within within the office, and you're buying the practice, obviously the relationships are intact. I've even uh, witnessed some licensed assistants that migrated into being an advisor who bought a business, and obviously, the, definitely in that case, you wouldn't need a time frame. And then, um, you know, I've also seen relatives. I mean, if you're a relative of the business, typically when that happens, uh, you know, whoever the senior advisor is would bring the relative in a long time before they're looking to establish a session plan. So so with that said, in those scenarios, you probably don't need much time uh, because the client relationships are typically established. However, that is not the case in most succession plans. While that is ideal, it is not the case. You know, typically, and I, I don't have a percentage, but based on my experience, I would say more than 75% of the succession plans I've witnessed were with a buyer and seller that did not have a previous relationship. Um, it was one of those scenarios where, you know, whether they seeked out internally, the broker dealer, as Deb alluded to earlier, or they seek out, you know, third party vendors to help them, uh, you know, with finding a, uh, you know, buyer seller relationship. At any rate, the relationship wasn't intact. So with that, there must be a time frame established. I suggest two years. And I believe two years, just based on experience, gives the buyer and seller the opportunity, first of all, to get to know each other and get to understand each other's business practices and philosophies. Because before you, if you're if you're a seller, before you introduce uh, the clients to a buyer, you want to make sure that you're in line um, with your philosophies because that can end the deal quickly. So once that intact and, and you have you know some months to spend some time on that, you begin to, as a seller, introduce those clients. You have to understand that these clients must have a relationship with someone to have invest their accounts and, 
and manage their money. You know, there aren't too many clients that are going to be interested in investing with someone they absolutely have no knowledge about. So with that, those firm those relationships have to be firm for the retention rate to get to that number that you need it to be. And I believe two years, based on my experience, those advisors who had a two-year plan, I've seen retention rates of 98% up to 100%. On the flip side, I've seen some reduced uh, timeframes, timeframes that were six months to a year. And I would say in those, only about 30% were successful. I've witnessed, you know, I will share this. I have an example for you. I've witnessed a, a succession plan where the the buyer actually paid up front for the business up to i think it was maybe 80% of the trail up front it was a ridiculous deal the seller joined the the firm and left resigned before even 6 months i want to say within 4 or 5 months resigned which led to a retention rate of, you can imagine, it was less than 25%. So that, so obviously there's some litigation behind that. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I did have a relationship with the buyer. And you know we had conversations about it and it was an awful experience. He blamed himself for being naive and, and, and making that type of offer because he was consulted not to, to do so, but he trusted the seller. So that's why I believe, you know, two years is definitely, you know, if I had to suggest a give a time frame, I would say two years every time. Yeah. Now, now, obviously, with, with the two year in place, it could be one year where you feel that comfort level established and, and you feel that, OK, we can get this this role mm-hmm. and we can possibly be completed with prior to two years. But it has to it has to be longer than six months for sure. Yeah, and, and those are great points. And I know <clears throat> Deb talks a lot about legacy, the, the legacy that you've established and the legacy you want to leave behind. And I'm sure a lot of our viewers that are sellers are saying, Trusted Vision, Sean, you're crazy. I, I want to retire in six months <laughs> to a year. Right. You know, understanding that these are clients that you have served and done investment work with them and built relationships, it's you got to take that seriously because right. you want to understand whoever's buying your practice. Like you said, Sean, do they have the same business philosophy? Right. Are they going to, because you have a lot of buyers out there that say, Hey, I'm going to buy this all commission based product business practice and I'm converting it all to advisory right away. Right. Well, right. is that what you really want your legacy to be left as is your clients thinking, Holy cow. You sold your practice to this guy, and he's doing completely different investment objectives than what you did over the last 20, 30 years. Right, right, um, right. Now, Sean, one question I would have, because, again, I'm sure a lot of our viewers that are sellers are saying, Sean, I don't want to work 40, 60, 80 hours a week for the next two years. I was planning on retiring next year. Right, when right. you say in the ideal scenario of <clears throat> two years – Correct me if I'm wrong. That doesn't mean that you have to be in there working full time as the seller. It's it, it's more of going to visit with clients or or having those phone meetings. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. In the beginning, there may be a a 40 hour work week in the very beginning because you, as a seller, 
uh, you would certainly want, um, you know, the buyer, you know, seller, your relationship there in the beginning, just to um, sit in the meetings together, um, build those relationships together, you know, <clears throat> continue to work with those clients together early on. But as those relationships uh, begin to, uh, you know, cultivate, then obviously you as a the seller can just kind of take a step back and allow the buyer to, you know, really, you know, uh, drive the ship, so to speak. So I, I think early on, for sure, you're going to need to put in the hours. But, you know, after a couple of months and, and the relationships are intact, you can take a step back. It's more or less of a, in my, in my opinion, it's more or less, less of a life preserver type scenario where you as the seller, you're still on tap. Meaning that the client has a question about this buyer or the client doesn't feel comfortable, you're still accessible. And um, so that's why I believe that you want to stay put for a little while. But there's there's ways you can structure those deals, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on, um, that, that makes the most sense for both parties mm-hmm. involved. But absolutely, in the beginning, just to reiterate, yes, you're going to spend some time. But as you, I would say, three, six months out, you know, not as much, you know, you know, so you're not working 40, 60 hour weeks. Yeah, and that's a good point, Sean, when you say really the buyer needs to drive the ship. That That's where I'm sure both of you and I've seen the conflict happen is the seller has been so devoted to that right. practice and that clientele for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And then the buyer comes in and starts having a little bit right. different style <laughs> of communication to clients or has different investment advice, not necessarily moving them from commissions to advisory, but has other suggestions for them. Right. And that seller, you've got to understand viewers that as a seller, and I know this is difficult for for anybody, not just financial advisors, but human beings is once you sell your practice, you got to step back and, and let that buyer, that financial advisor that's buying your practice drive the ship to Sean's point. So, so great point there. So as we wrap up, I'm sure the last question people have is, how do you negotiate price? And, and Sean, thank you for the, the easy um, transition from, from your topic <laughs> to this topic of everybody says, which I would agree, this is a seller's market. But that doesn't mean you have to be foolish when it comes to negotiating the deal or overpaying for it, because that's where your return on investment is not going to make sense. Most broker dealers out there have practice management teams that can help, you know, determine the value of a practice and, and maybe you pay a little bit extra. Um, and there's also services out there that can talk you through, like Trusted Visions, that can talk you through how to negotiate that price. What I would say, and this is just my personal opinion throughout the years that I've been doing this, is I don't ever think you should pay more than 40 at most 50% up front. Um, because if you do, I haven't seen in my 21 years of doing this, a scenario where you've paid, you paid more than 50% up front and it worked out well from a retention of clients because that, that seller has already got a good half of their money. They're checked out. I mean, they're not to your point, Sean, they're not working at 40 hours a week (laughs) for the first three, six months to retain clients. Cause yeah, they care about the, the back end of it, but I typically say if you put 20, 25% down and then negotiate either a revenue split for a period of time, three, five, I've seen as high as seven years, which seems a little high to me. Um, Or I've seen deals and I've worked on a couple last year where 
it wasn't even a revenue split. It was 20% upfront and then a monthly payment guaranteed for the next five years with a specific interest rate. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think, and there's no right or wrong answer to that, but if you think you're going to grow the practice, if you can talk to the advisor that's selling and come up with a fixed monthly amount for a period of time, that makes a lot more sense because you're growing the practice. Um, I, I had an advisor, I think last year I was working with, he had a $2.2 million practice and he wanted to sell it for $6 million, which it, it was pretty close to a $6 million purchase price, but he wanted $5 million of it up front. Right. And <laughs> I, I mean, when you come into those scenarios, and we'll talk about it next week in terms of being a seller, but you got to have real, realistic expectations on both sides. And right. there's got to be some wiggle room. Deb, I think you brought it up last week of, or Sean, you did, of if you're out there looking for the, the practice to buy and just want to be the highest bidder, that's not as important as the relationship right. with the advisor that's selling the practice and how involved <laughs> they're going to be. Um, it, it's just like chasing the biggest transition check. Um, right. That comes with caveats. And, and we work with advisors, and I, I know we've, we've had conference calls with advisors together where, you know, we ask them, what's important to you? Um, and, and some of them will say, and, and it's okay, I want the biggest upfront check. Right. Well, it's our jobs as true consultants to talk them through what does that mean? If, if Once we talk them through what does that mean, they still want it? Okay, well, we'll get it for you. Um, so similar to buying a practice, to, win, to be able to buy the practice doesn't mean you got to be the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, anything you want to add, Deb? No, I think, uh, no, you did a great job on that. I, I was just, as you were, you were talking about um, the pricing and stuff, I think I'll just throw in. I've also seen um, on the negotiation, the 25, I agree with kind of up front, you never want to do what, what Sean's person did and, uh, you know, 25, 30% up front the monthly payments, however else, and also where you do something that is, you know, whatever that percentage is you do up front. And then also another bogey, right? Once you get a certain number of assets or clients, you know, transition, right? If you're, if you're transitioning. So there, well, so that's kind of two different things. Sorry, Jeremy. I mean, I understand because my mind's going off, but um, but also just because again, on, on client retention, let's just call it a certain percentage of that, um, because again, that keeps that advisor, you know, to Sean's example, mm-hmm. that keeps that seller um, involved, right? And have skin in the game for making sure that those clients transition, right? And and move assets. So that's just, I, I just had thought about that as, as another, you know, potential um, uh, as a way to do it too. Absolutely agree. Sean, anything you want to add before we wrap up for the week? No, great conversation. Yes. Well, viewers, we greatly appreciate you you watching this podcast. We will continue on this series next week. Hope that everybody has a great week. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to comment on our LinkedIn page or our YouTube channel or email us at info at trustedvisions.com. We greatly appreciate all of your support. Have a great week, team, and uh, we will be back next week.